Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tell me a story. Folklore and Irish tales with Eddie Lenehan. Believe it or not, mine is a job if you want to call it that, that most people find very hard to understand, collecting stories. And the reason why is that, uh, and they ask me constantly, how much is it worth? How much are you making out of it? How much are you earning? And I say, I'm not. And... I've been at this now for 42 years. And people say, how do you mean? You must be making money out of it. Why would you be doing it otherwise? And I say, just for the love of it. And people scratch their head. But, but sure, there's nobody doing a job just for the love of it. You have to live. And of course, that's true, you have to live. But I've been teaching, you see, for 27 of those years. And I'm not teaching anymore. But even when I was teaching, I used to collect stories. And I started when I was in college in Galway. And I started in a very, very odd way. I was sent out when I was doing my MA in phonetics. Phonetics. By my professor, tough man. A tough man. Doing his message work. Uh, he was compiling a dictionary at that time of phonetics and I was sent out uh, collecting 
words, words and the pronunciation of words, a most boring, boring job in itself. But I was sent out to my native place in Kerry and, of course, I didn't have a clue that time uh, who, who might be suitable to, to, to interview. And my father, my father in that place, Brosna, he was a harness maker. And, of course, my father would know the old fellas. I was only 26 at the time. What does somebody at 26 know about anything? And nowadays, of course, 26-year-olds, they know everything about everything about everything. But they don't. They don't. <laughs> it's not even their 46 they realise. <laughs> they know nothing and they look back ashamed and they say, oh, my God. Or if they don't, they will. They will look back if they're still alive. And I hope they are to know their mistakes. But at that time... My father, because he knew all the old fellas as a harness maker would, as a blacksmith would at the time, both threads that are gone now, because farmers in a farming community at that time, they would have to have their harness for their horses repaired, they'd have to have their horses shod, and they'd come in, because farmers at that time, and maybe now, they leave things till the last moment, and then I want it now, and they'd wait. They'd wait for it to be done. And while they'd be waiting, they'd be telling stories and they'd be talking about the weather and the football matches and whatnot. And my father knew them all. So when I asked my father uh, who would be suitable, he pointed me in one particular direction to an old man who lived in a place called Rekoshle. And I went to this man, Jack Thornlin Leahy, uh, he was in his late 80s at that time. So, by God, what age would he be now in 2018? He'd be, he'd be uh, as they say, sometimes here, his teeth aren't at him now. But, but I went to him, lovely man, lovely man and his wife too. They lived oh Jesus, uh, up a small road and then up a boreen from that and I had a, a Yamaha 200 at the time. I remember it. God, it was a great bike, but you were inclined to go too fast in it. You know, it was a, the only motorbike I ever had. And thanks be to God, because motorbikes are lethal. <laughs> I hate them now. Now, now, sadly, there's too many people killed off the filthy things. But but uh, I had to leave the motorbike below the road because the passageway up to the house was was up a hill. And... Jack told me stories about that particular place that his father or grandfather, under the landlords, had to, with pick and shovel and spade, had to dig out, out of heather and bog, and reclaim that place. And as I listened, you know, I still have the tapes that I made of him and me trying to get him to pronounce words for me. Stupid stuff when I look at it now. And he calling me, sir, sir, a man of 80, and me at 26, sir. And I look at it and I say, oh, my God, you know, a, a man that had seen life uh, in so many ways and history and all that, and me who had seen nothing. But as time went on and I went back and back and back, and I did. I wasn't one of these fellas, thanks be to God, no, who just came, did my job and went away because I became a friend of the family. And I, I'm so lucky I did. But that's because they made me welcome. 
He lived in a small little thatched house. Uh, it was like something out of the 19th century, which I suppose it was, because it had never been modernised, old open fire and everything like that that was, that was not of this age anyway. And they weren't either. And in so many ways, you know, mentally, lucky for me, as I say, it went back and back and back. And oh, he was a funny man. He was a funny man, but just the kind of person that I needed to meet then. He knew about the troubles. He knew about the First World War because his own brother had been killed in the First World War in very sad circumstances. He survived until October 1918 and was just killed before the armistice of November 1918. And he told all about he, how his brother went to that war, partly by boredom, partly by, like so many others, went to the war, no employment, nothing to do at home. They weren't fighting for King or Kaiser or anybody else. They were fighting just because poverty, poverty in a miserable place like that. You know, there was no work in Ireland. And it's only when I think of all the thousands and thousands of graves in Flanders today and those lovely white headstones, under each one of those, there's a story. Every one of them, be they Australian or Indian or English or Irish or whatever, whatever, that joined the so-called imperial armies. Sad. When I remember his story that I have on record, and, you know, from a small little village in Kerry, it's, it's terribly sad. And, and partly by accident, he went there, only to be killed for a stupid war that... that what did it change? Nothing. Because it led to another war, 1918, 28, 38, 39, 21 years later. And it was only recently that I found out something horrible, awful about that, that the Treaty of Versailles that finished that war, I never realised that, that you'll see those beautiful uh, imperial war grave cemeteries, how well they're kept. And I often wondered, why, why the German graveyards, where where are they, you know? They have to be there too because an equal number of Germans were killed uh, in all these battles. Like, for example, the, the Battle of the Somme. Wasn't it the greatest defeat of the British army? The greatest loss, at least. 40,000 British killed on the first day, at thereabouts. And that battle went on for six months. The mincing machine, it was called, where around a million men on both sides were killed. Where are the German graveyards? And just then I found out that in the, the Treaty of Versailles, the German grave crosses had to be black, whereas the Allied ones were all white. Uh, uh, what would I call it? Not a tribute, but the opposite. Uh, an acknowledgement of guilt. The Germans were guilty. And I thought, oh, how shocking. And the German soldiers were just fighting for, presumably, their country too. And here they were being blamed for that. Hitler had a field day. Hitler, <laughs> look, they victimised us. Let's, let's get revenge on them for this. And he did. He, he roused up all these latent hatreds for 21 years later and... and 
Stupid. The people are so, so stupid. And out of each little village in Ireland, like the one that I'm talking about, there came people who were sucked into that morass of... But, on the other hand, I have discovered for my next book, Military Memories, um, people's memories of who served there, uh, funny stories. There's one, I remember now, an old man telling me that... Uh, one of these young men who served in that place, he didn't, you know, they were going there. It was a little bit of pay, whereas they had nothing here. Uh, he was sent to the trenches only to find out this godforsaken place, rats, mud, uh, something he wasn't expecting. He was expecting to go out and fight, you know, bang, bang, you know, it's something noble, only to find out, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? But he was one of the smart ones. What did he do? He wasn't there long before he realised, I'm not going to be here with artillery barrages. You could be killed at any moment. What did he do one particular morning? <laughs> he put up his hand. Of course, a sniper, bang, got him in the wrist. And he was taken back, of course, before he bled to death, uh, taken back to a dressing station. But a man with one hand is useless. He can't fire a rifle. So he was back home. He got out of it. He was smart enough to see that here is a way out. Now, he was crippled for the rest of his life a little bit, but the man who told me the story said he was well able to drink a pint of Guinness. And he got a pension. He got a pension, whereas many of his comrades back in France were killed. They weren't smart enough to see that there is a way out of this hell. So... I've discovered many things through being sent by my father to that old man. I found out that it wasn't just phonetics and the pronunciation of words that I discovered the whole new world, that there's something behind this, the stories, that's history. And it's history that I have been interested in ever since. History of, I don't care what, be it now the First World War and all of that, that's fading. That's gone, because the people who have taken part in that, they're all dead. They're all dead now. But I followed that up with the Troubles, our own Troubles, you know, the first Troubles, the Civil War, and that'll be included in the next book, Military Memories. Uh, wh whoever served where? Uh, I, I had some who served... Now, I could only hear about them from their people who served in the Boer War, for example. First World War, then Second World War... I interviewed some of those, and it is a remarkable thing where Irish people served. From Darwin, literally, to my own uncles. They served in the British Navy during the war. And by the way, I guarantee you, lots of the people who served with the British uh, forces in the Second World War, they weren't welcome when they came back to Ireland. They were not. There was always the threat that just because you serve with the British, uh, you might be <coughs> received with a bullet in the night. You see, if you tell what you should tell in history, and thanks be to God there are some r real historians now writing in Ireland. Now, I'm not talking about revisionism. That's another thing. But tell things as they are or were. 
you come up against some very uncomfortable truths. We tended to build up heroes in our first days of independence, and that is very, very normal uh, that any country would do that. Uh, you'll see gravestones at the side of the road all over Ireland of people who were shot during the Troubles, and they were oglig, oglig heron. But if you go back sometimes and are lucky to find a people who knew those, you find out, of course, they weren't oglig at all. They were ordinary people who maybe were shot by the auxiliaries or the tans going about their business, but who were, who were uh, what would I say, promoted into the oglig afterwards to make heroes of them. There were maybe young fellows going about their business who got in the way, were in the wrong place at the wrong time and who were shot by the tans. They might be caught in a crossfire. But afterwards they were promoted into being, oh, well, they must be heroes, so we'd put up a cross at the side of the road to them. And that was very understandable. But the real story was something else. Or the site of a famous ambush. I know one or two of those in Kerry now. Famous ambush. Well, the boys shot themselves. <laughs> the boys actually shot themselves. They fumbled the bloody ambush and shot themselves. But that's not said above on the plaque at the place. And there's a lot of other ignoble things that happened. Fellas who were there and they did mighty deeds, they weren't there at all. They went up afterwards to claim a pension. And the men behind the desk, you know, were laughing. Jesus, there's a very funny one. And the man behind the desk said, Jesus, sure everyone in Kerry was there at that ambush that day. <laughs> but the fella got his pension all the same. It's sometimes comical sometimes dead serious comical. Uh, that's what makes the beauty of collecting stories so different from uh, going through books and writing written history. And the horrible thing is that people who write, write history out of sources look, look down on folklore history so often. They say that, ah, well, well that's only, only folklore. I say to them very often, and more than very often, hold on a minute, what are you talking about? Written history is on, only written history. It's no better, no worse than folklore, because the written sources are written by somebody, and very often by the winner, very often by the winner. So the, the folklore is every bit as valuable as the written version and should be actually told. Now, <laughs> I suppose in that case, in my case, written down, which, which squares the circle or circles the square, goddammit, because when I do this, uh, somebody will come after me with my spoken sources and my spoken sources will become written sources. <laughs> you know, it's, um, <clears throat> what would I say? It's a... Uh, a vicious circle in one sense, but they have to be, they have to be collected, because the one thing I'm most conscious of is that the people are dying, and when one person dies, a whole what, a library of stuff, as somebody said, could die with them, and I've been collecting for forty-two years now, and in those forty-two years, I've only met four or five real storytellers, what I would consider real storytellers. There are plenty of people who know 
quite a lot of material, and material that deserves to be recorded, because everybody knows something, but you can't record everything. Uh, the people who are worth recording in the sense that you can't neglect them, they're vital, and when you come across them, you'll know them. Well, you should know them. I, I should know them after all the collecting I've done. And sometimes you just stumble across them. As I say, I've met four or five of them. And you always sense that this is a privilege to have met these. And you go back to them and back to them and back to them. If they'll talk to you, and usually they will, because these people want to talk to you because they have a sense of the value of what they have themselves. And... It's not a pompous sense. It's a sense of they want this stuff to be recorded because they know as well that it's valuable and they know that they could go at any time and for posterity, and they wouldn't call it posterity, just that somebody would have it. I have, I'd say... Of, of the, those four or five people now, four mainly, but another man as well, uh, I have, I'd say, about 300 hours of those people alone. And I could have got more, except they died. <laughs> they died, as simple as that. They were going strong up to the time they died. And they were all in their 90s when they died. Wonderful people, wonderful, wonderful people. And I'm sure there were people like that all over Ireland. I came too late, in one sense. If, uh, and so did the folklore department, but so does everybody. In the folklore department in Dublin, you see, you had these phenomenal people that were recorded by writing. And you can't record people by writing. It was wonderful, it was done. But can you imagine me talking to you now and you having to tell me every uh, minute or so uh, hold on a minute now until I catch up to you writing it will break the sequence constantly constantly especially if I was telling you a story not just telling you about stories it would ruin the flow of the story the dramaticness if there is such a word of the story so even though we do have great stuff in those manuscripts from the early days and by expert collectors who knew their job, it isn't the same thing as having it on record or tape or disc or whatever. But we're lucky to have it, extremely lucky to have such a thing. But I have myself a, a, a good collection here, and the advantage of having that good collection is I don't have to ask any permissions to use it. No, it's not as if the, the people in UCD are mean or stingy with their permissions. They're not. Because it's a national collection. It's a national collection. It belongs to the nation, after all. It's not just UCDs. It's uh, belonged to, belong to everybody because it was collected with public money. But uh, that's all that same. I like to be able to reach up into a shelf here and take down... Uh, that disc or this disc and oh yes I remember who I collected that from and it conjures up a picture for me of me being in that person's house when uh, it's nice, it's nice I only wished that I had the camera on the day but you say camera is not a good thing 
because a lot of the old people, they don't perform well before a camera. Uh, it's, it distracts them. Many of them now, many of them. Some wouldn't mind, but a lot of the old people, the camera is uh, it's a kind of a thing that would not suit them. Whereas a microphone, no problem. Because a microphone, you can have your conversation and, uh, you know, the microphone doesn't distract at all. After a few minutes, it's, you know, there. So, uh, I, I uh, found one thing, though, recently, uh, very, very odd. Now, some people, when it comes to playback time, not payback time, but playback time, some people don't like hearing their own dead people. Their forebears will say, their parents, their grandparents, and I always offer, look, do you want a copy of? Do you want to hear? And some, yes, mostly no. It's a very odd thing. Uh, an odd person will ask me, could I have a... Photos, no problem. It's a very strange thing. Many people, because I do take photos, I like to get a picture of me and the old person. I didn't do that at the start, and I'm so sorry. But nowadays I do. I do. Um, I always like to get a picture of myself and the old person. It's lovely to have uh, a picture, uh, just to, partly to, to bring the tape or the, the MD more to life. It's lovely to have a, a, a picture to go with the... Because you forget. You forget. And you forget the house. Where, where was that house of that person? Recently, I was up in Tubber looking for a man, a man's house. And he told me quite a few stories of Biddy Early. And when my book was recently republished, In Search of Biddy Early, I was looking for this man's relatives so that I could give him a copy of the book. He's dead since. But I couldn't find the house. His house now, his house. And I wanted a photo of it. And yes, I, I just couldn't. And I, I knew roughly where it was, but I had to inquire and inquire. And finally, when the house was pointed out to me, I said, was I there? Was I really in that house? I could not remember, could not recall. But then again, it was 16, 17 years. So you forget. You forget. And that's the reason why so many people, I think... I think they forget not just voices, but sometimes they forget their own relations. It's a hard thing to believe that you could forget your own relations and maybe not want to bring up that past because the one thing we forget most and first are voices. You remember a face, but you, you, you forget a voice. Believe you me, you'll forget a voice. And I should know because I've been collecting voices for 42 years. And that, when you say I've been collecting stories for 42 years, that means I've been collecting voices for 42 years. And remember now, we're in a visual age now. You can, you can look up this, that and the other thing on television. But I'm talking about something else entirely. I'm talking about recorded voices, uh, the, the audio without the faces. And... And when you're talking like that, you do forget. Uh, people, 
relations and that forget. And that's why I sometimes offer them, do you want to hear again? And people can be very, very hesitant. I think partly because it's like calling up a ghost. My own wife there now, I have her mother here on record and she won't hear her. She won't hear her. And I'd be mocking her sometimes, mocking her, you know, like, uh, come on, why not, are you afraid of... Uh-uh. Or listen to her own mother. That's a strange thing. And the other thing then is, that you get very strange reactions. I recently offered another woman here, an old woman, uh, I said to her in a friendly way one day, I said to her, um, I have your husband, he's dead, uh, if you want to hear him... Uh, you're more than welcome. And her reaction? How much? <laughs> You're likely to get any reaction. She thought I would be charging for... And I was, oh my God. You can't win. You can't win. You're so... You're, you're, it's so funny. You're, you're, but as I say before, that's the beauty of being in this job. You're dealing with people all the time. And that's the good thing. That's the good thing. You never know when you go to a door or anything else, you can be told to F off, but more than likely you'll be brought in, you'll be given the tea and you'll be treated well. That's Ireland. But you don't know that. You don't know that. Luckily for me now, I'm pretty well known. I'm pretty well known. And people people know that I'm not up to any blackguarding or trickery or anything else. Um, if people want to tell me, go away, thank you, thank you, I'll do that. But if they, if they want me to follow up on something, and this is no self-praise or anything else, they know that with people there that I have, that ha- well, that have treated me well down the years and talked to me, I'll follow that up right until the day they die, sometimes into the hospital, and I have been there with some of them until the day before they died. And I don't know, is that a good or a bad thing? But it's not as it sometimes shows in the case of television people. Hi, here we are, we're making a film and they're here, bye-bye. You never hear from them again. As in the majority of, you know, it's just a job for them. But in this kind of uh, thing, it's not a job. And it can't be a job. And if it is a job, do it some other job. Because if it is that, you will not get the best out of people because it's a very gradual process. When you go in to these people first, you're only getting the tip of the iceberg. You have to feel your way gradually and gradually and gradually and as you get to know them better, you're finding out new things all the time that you would not find out at a first or a second or a third or a fourth try. Because in a country place especially, where you, you, you find out little bits about relations of relations of this and that and, mm, uh, uh, over to like a spider's web. A lot of it you might not want to find out at all. Things about people who did this and that. and mm, 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 mm. Those are the things you put aside. Most interesting stuff. But stuff that's going no further. And you have to have the discretion to know <laughs> when to leave be. But... Interesting stuff nonetheless. Stuff that you wouldn't repeat in the pub to anybody. Uh, Partly because they all know it. 
they all know it. And uh, some of it, as I say, the kind of stuff that, that might be better left unsaid in some cases. And anyway, if you did say it, they would quickly say to you, oh, you're an outsider, huh? Even though you're here 42 years or 43 years in the parish, you're still an outsider. You weren't born here. And again, there's Ireland. My children would be regarded as being from the parish, but I wouldn't. And, you see, it'll be thrown at you sometime or other from the most uh, peculiar place that, that you're an outsider. It might be in a game of cards. It might be when somebody gets angry. Uh, at this stage, I don't belong anywhere. I left Kerry all those years ago. I'm only here, as I say, 40-something years, <laughs> only. Um, so, at this stage, you know, you're floating on a surface of nothing, which in one way is great, in another way. Um, but at least, I find, at least I've done my best to mix with people of all kinds and, and collect. I probably know more about this place in some ways than most people. And the advantage is, as a stranger, you can say things and do things that, that local people couldn't do. I, I always say to people that if you're collecting, folklore especially, um, ask a stranger to do sensitive things. I say to people, if you're collecting folklore about your family, maybe... Ask me to do it, because people will never collect folklore about their own family. Oh, I'll record her next year. I'll do it, I'll do it. And then she's dead. And then she's dead. And why the God didn't we do it? Why the hell didn't we do it? I say, yeah, why didn't you do it? Why the hell didn't you do it? I would have done it for you. And I could have done it for you. Just give me a few questions, give me a lead in and I'll do it for you. And I'll guarantee you we'll be sitting down there with your mother, who, who is 85, no problem at all. And I, because I've done this for the last God only knows how many years with other old women or other old men, and we'll be sitting down and I'll give you the recording afterwards and you'll be delighted that I did it, because you wouldn't have done it. Most people never do it. Most people never do it. They'll take photos. Every idiot has a photo album. But to actually have the voice... The voice is the vital thing, if not for yourself, for your children. Because I had recently one of the travelling people come to me and I had recorded his grandfather years ago and a great man, the grandfather, to tell stories. One of the old-style storytellers who... If there was anybody talking while he was telling his story, why, Jesus, he would shut them up. And, you know, young lads now would be crawling all over him, you know, this kind of thing. Take none of that shit. He wanted silence while he was telling his story, and that was it. And I... He... He would... <laughs> he, was a, he was a rough man in the sense that... that his story was first... He was a, a gentleman in other ways, but I got good photos of him as well, as well as the recording. But then one day, out of the blue, this fella 
met me in the street. Bodily fella. And he said, you recorded my grandfather. I didn't know him at all. What was your grandfather's name? John, you know, whatever. I said, I did. Well, he said, my, my daughter, she'd love to hear him. He never hurt him, he was dead. I said, I'll see. And I wrote him out anyway, I wrote him out on one of the tapes. And I retaped it. Because that's all I could do, retape it. I, I couldn't make another disc out of it. At least I couldn't. Another person might be able to. But I retaped it and I said, look, I left it into a place in Innes for him and I, I gave it to him. As much as I could have it. Uh, I, I didn't have a full story, but it was enough to give him a good sample of the old man, you know, shutting him up and, and giving him... A, it was a good story, but I didn't have all of it. And what a pity. And I had a few of the stories... Are a few of the photos as well. Nice photos of the old man, you know. But he was delighted to get them. For the sake, not, not so much of himself, but of the young girl. And I was delighted. I was delighted. And that, as I say, is very often the case. That it's for your children or grandchildren that you should have these. Because look, everybody is dying. People forget that. You won't be allowed, uh, around. You will not be around forever. People forget that. And that's what I keep in mind always. <laughs> and you know what I put that uh, down to? My education with the brothers in Cork. The presentation brothers. <laughs> it was a good foundation. I, I do put my interest in this kind of thing partly down to that. We're only all passing through and it's nice to be able to leave something behind you and to preserve something for the future. If that sounds a little bit maudlin, it isn't. It's reality. I often think of that when I be going up to the pub there at night. Uh, I do all my writing in the pub. Uh, I, there's a nice little quiet spot above in the pub where all my stuff is done in longhand. And th what I'm doing at the moment is another book entirely, besides military memories. It's a novel about the Civil War. I made great progress last night. I got nearly three pages done. But that's a lot for a night's work. And uh, I, what I do, you see, is as much as I can, I incorporate some of the stories I've heard down the years into that, which is very handy. But but I hope it'll be a serious one, because the Civil War was no fun. As you know, Civil War, especially in Kerry, was a filthy affair and a dirty affair. And it broke up families everywhere, but it broke up families in Kerry especially. And in Kerry, my own county, I made inquiries about the Civil War and it was the only place that I was ever told to fuck off when I made inquiries about the Civil War, which will tell you how bitter it was. Um, I recorded a terrible amount of, uh, of material there too, about it. And bits of that I'll be using in the novel. Whether it'll ever see publication or not, I do not know. But, but um, a lifetime of this kind of collecting and it takes a lifetime. You can't, you can't do this kind of uh, 
thing overnight. And I don't think you can limit any university uh, creative writing course. It's a kind of a thing that uh, it takes your own interest. And as I said, at the start, a sense of history. Uh, if you have that, you may, may do a thing. In the 20 books I've published now, the first of those being the stories of a poor man who spent his life in Our Lady's mental hospital in Ennis. That was a revelation to me. So, you know, between that and this and this and that and collecting this, they all build up into, I hope, something that is not different. Everybody is different, but individual. Individual. That's all. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.